Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful today we could come to ASI and uh, we come to be inspired, to be filled with hope, to be filled with enthusiasm for your cause. And we ask that would happen today as a result of this presentation um, and that your work would go forward in this world. And we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. In fact, it's already working. Did you hear that music that came up during the prayer? Hope and enthusiasm and leadership. First of all, who am I? I'm Don McIntosh, like the computer. I work at Weimar Institute. Weimar Institute is a, uh, is a college and a new church. We started a church there because we believe that the purpose of the college is to support God's church in this world. Uh, Harvard used to have a seal that was Veritas for the church for Christ and the church, but they took off for Christ and the church, and now they're just Veritas, but Veritas is truth according to whatever they come up with. So, uh, But I'm excited to be a part of a school um, that is attempting to produce people for Christ and his church. So hope, enthusiasm, and leadership. In that capacity there, just a little more about me, is I, I'm kind of a vision caster at, at Weimar. I work with Dr. Nedley. We have a shared vision and um, basically um, work as the church pastor and the leader of a small uh, health evangelism school that's a four-month school uh, or certificate program, and then also work um, with the depression recovery program as a counselor 50 days out of the year. So I wear about three hats, but most importantly... I'm married to Luminitsa Lacrimiora Constantinescu. I'm very enthusiastic about that name. It took me a while to learn it. <laughs> Luminitsa Lacrimiora Constantinescu. And I'm also the father of the four living creatures, uh, James Madison Sabatismos, uh, Catherine Caroline, um, Donald Malcolm, and Elizabeth May. Yeah, it is something to scream about. I uh, totally agree. Now, enthusiasm, it changes things, okay? It changes things beginning in the brain. I want to talk about some of the technical aspects of enthusiasm and then close with a case study, maybe. There are correlates in the brain that uh, go along with enthusiastic uh, message propagation, in other words, talking. They examined the neural precursors of spreading ideas with enthusiasm. They studied it, kind of like dissecting you know, a frog to see how it jumps. The frog no longer jumps, but you figure something out. So anyway, they dissected the brain and dissected enthusiasm into component processes or processes that can be identified through automated linguistic analysis. So they were looking at, you know, what the person was saying, human ratings of combined linguistic and nonverbal cues. So how does the person move? Do they use their hands and whatnot? And they looked at that as well. And points of convergence between the two. And then they combined all the above by looking internally at the brain from functional magnetic resonance images, or MRIs is what we call them. And they looked at that and attempted to link the neurocognitive mechanisms that are set in motion during initial exposure to ideas and subsequent behaviors of the message communicators. So they took these enthusiastic communicators and basically said, what's happening? What are they saying? How are they using their hands? How are they... How is this working? Um, and, you know, what are those language patterns? And then also, what's happening inside the brain? Um, and participants were exposed to the ideas. They had a video discussing the ideas. 
Those videos were transcribed and then rated and looking at the neural correlates, correlates of enthusiastic me message propagation. And here's what they found in some senses from some of those MRIs, okay? Personal positive sentiment. First of all, if you have these, if you have a personal positive sentiment, how many of you have met these people that are not personally positive people? Very hard to be enthusiastic if you're not positive, right? Right? Look at the person next to you and say, are you positive or negative? You can probably tell just by looking at them. Positive sentiment was associated with activation in neural regions, including the medial prefrontal cortex and the precutaneous posterior cingulate cortex and the medial temporal lobe. In other words, the place is lighting up on the screen, okay? I know you're going to go out there and say, look, I, I just want to talk to you about your medial prefrontal cortex just for a couple minutes. How many of you are going to not probably do that? But anyway, it sounds fancy, so that's why I'm saying it. And then a positive, not just a sentiment, but evaluation. You normally look at things and you can find something positive to come out of it, right? An enthusiastic person is not easily dissuaded. Everything that comes along, you're, they usually will look at what the element is that they can agree and approve and accept the person has shared with them. They don't dismiss, dismiss people, but they'll say, I hear what you're saying, but here's what I think the positive element is in this evaluation coming out of it. That more evaluative positive descriptions was associated exclusively with the neural activity in the temporal parietal junction, TPJ. Look at that person next to you and say, hey, what's your TPJ doing right now? I mean, is it evaluating even what you've heard so far in this presentation positively? Yes or no? Look at the person next to you and say, or, I'm trying to figure out how I'm doing, see? So you've got to help me out. All right, then they looked at enthusiasm, which was looking at the positive evaluative as well as the other, and putting all these things together, the researchers did. And they found that there was activation across the medial prefrontal cortex. In other words, it's the frontal lobe, folks. Look at the person next to you and say, it's the frontal lobe. You guys have a problem looking at each other. Just look at each other to see if I can see you can do that. Some of you are still not looking at the person. I mean, you're just looking right at me. Okay, you already did it once. Okay, it's kind of like saying I love you. Don't just do it just once. You've got to do it again and again. Activation across the medial prefrontal cortex, the precutaneous posterior cingulate cortex. I mean, you guys should be saying these things with me at this point. The dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, the temporal parietal junction, that's everything we just talked about. The medial temporal function, as well as the ventral striatum, all these things are hopping and popping at the same time, including the inferior parietal lobule and premotor cortex. Can you say amen? <laughs> this is enthusiasm. In other words, all I'm trying to say, and I probably should have just said it this way, is that there are many areas of the brain that are activated when you're enthusiastic. How many think that that should have been uh, what I started with? But I'm just trying to impress you that, that, that the entire brain comes on board, and enthusiasm starts there. Don't try and look for enthusiasm coming from somewhere else. You know what that's called? Excitement. X means out to incite someone, excite someone. So enthusiasm actually internally comes, all right? Uh, 
And, you know, you're, the way you relate can influence others, right? So the way you look, especially when someone who does not have a prefrontal cortex that's really developed well, they will, through the agency of mere neurons, pick up on your enthusiasm. They will look the same way that you do in the insula of the brain. You know, Luke 24, Jesus was with two very discouraged disciples. And he went and he began to ask them what was happening. By the end of it, they were enthusiastic and helpful and hopeful based on a Bible study. Can you say amen? Right? But he started out, why do you look at each other? Why are you sad? What are you talking about? So it does make a difference in how you look. Now, just to illustrate this, I thought this was a great clip. Uh, this person is looking at social media or something. And <laughs> look what happens. to you has this ever happened to you right and and, and and so it's contagious sometimes enthusiasm is contagious in fact it better be contagious if you want to have leadership because this contagion kind of spreads and then other people are are, are they're happy they're joyful they're spreading the message amen look at that person next to you and say amen All right. People, now, how can we build this? How can we build enthusiasm? You know, there are some things that you can do, like, for instance, physical exercise. People who are more physically active report greater levels of excitement and enthusiasm than people who are less physically active. If you want to be enthusiastic, get out, walk, run, do something, swim. I'm much more enthusiastic after exercise than before. And I didn't even exercise this morning. <laughs> if I would have exercised, this could have been really troubling. <laughs> okay, so, um, <clears throat> so exercise does. I work in a program called the Depression and Anxiety Recovery Program. People that come in and are depressed, you know, <clears throat> especially when they have benzodiazepines that they're taking and whatnot, that depresses the frontal lobe and also erases enthusiasm. <laughs> We give them, depending on the level of addiction that they have to these substances or others, exercise. I can always tell when a patient comes to me from Dr. Nedley that if they're on a lot of, of benzos. You know why? Because I'll, I'll look at the chart and it says, four hours of exercise a day. <laughs> that means they need some serious help 
because they're taking the place of the medication to make them enthusiastic through the exercise. Are you with me? And, and it works. You know, people come to me and say, look, I want to talk about all my problems. I say, let's talk while we walk. Because <laughs> I know my talking is not going to maybe be that helpful, and neither is theirs probably if they've been living on this diet of negative automatic thoughts. People also are more likely to report feelings of excitement and enthusiasm on days when they are more physically active than usual. You know, uh, sometimes you're not planning on being physically active that long, like on a recent trip when I went on this hike, and the, the hike was seven miles longer than I anticipated. But when we got through, we were all very enthusiastic and tired. Exercise elevates dopamine D2 receptor in mouse models of Parkinson's disease. So they're watching these, these mice, and they're, they're looking at different levels of exercise. We found that high-intensity treadmill exercise led to an increase in striatal DAD2R expression. In other words, when you're exercising, you get the dope, is what I mean. The dopamine, it's going. And dopamine has a lot to do with not so much pleasure. We used to think it was all pleasure, but now we realize that dopamine is more related to motivation. Motivation. Can you say motivation? Look at the person next to you and say, dopamine is related to motivation. <laughs> right, so this is, this is really the big thing, okay? Some of you are not sitting next to others so you don't get this benefit. You might want to move closer together to have this benefit of talking to someone else. Exercise-induced changes in the DAD2R in the dopamine-depleted basal ganglia are consistent with the potential role of this receptor in modulating medium spiny neuron function and behavioral recovery. You're saying, wait a minute, that's what's been missing, medial spinal function. I need more spiny function. Look at that person next to you. I need more spiny function. So what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. They put all these little uh, rats and mice in their little plate places, and they gave them places to exercise and whatnot. They had a control group, an enriched group, the phylloxetine, uh, which is a, like a depressant, antidepressant group, and the exercise group. Look at all the spiny things coming in the exercise picture. Can you see that? So you're actually growing more and more receptors. You become more and more enthusiastic the more you exercise. We see this happening in our 10-day program. People hadn't walked in years, and by the end of it, they're walking five or seven miles a day, and they are enthusiastic. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that could bless everybody is for their computers to die, their cell phones to go dead, and their cars to break down. <laughs> Can you say amen? And by the way, some people, that's what they need. Just get them away from everything electronic. Get them away from it. And get them refocused. I, I, I was with a 17-year-old who was into drugs. I took him out in the woods for two months. Actually, two weeks, it seemed like two years, but it was two weeks. And I had him out there, and at first he was all mad at me and everything else, and then he, he realized there's no way back, but this guy, he was not connected to any electronic devices, and neither was I, and the only thing we could connect to was Jesus and nature. Can you say amen? And suddenly he becomes more enthusiastic. He's now a pastor. He no longer gets high. He's connected with the most high. Can you say amen? So without enthusiasm, by the way, nothing happens. 
this is what research is, is telling us. Without enthusiasm, nothing happens. Change of the brain's networks is possible. However, it must come from within. It needs to be, get under your skin. Intrinsic motivation, enthusiasm, in enthusiasm. The brain's emotional centers must be activated. This happens only when you're enthusiastic about something. Groups of nerve cells in the midbrain are activated like we saw already. W would you go through the list, all the different areas of brain for me? No, of course you won't, but the medial, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, you see that there, VMPFC, that's to chart jug your memory. At their ends, they then distribute special messengers. We call them neuroplastic messengers. Neural what? In other words, they're going to remold the brain. Adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, serotonin, all these chemicals. Figuratively speaking, they act as a catalyst, as a fertilizer, which supports the remodeling process. So this enthusiasm actually begins to remold the brain. I mean, one of my functions as a dad, which is my most important job, is to enthusiastically re program the brains of my children <laughs> and even my dogs Mac and Tosh that's their names I want something to happen when I say my last name so Macintosh come running <laughs> so but you know when they come running that's because the enthusiasm you know have you ever done with a dog you say here Mac it's not coming here Mac 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 he comes right Something about enthusiasm that actually we now know remodels the brain. The good news is that man can build new networks even in old age. That's right, even old folks can become enthusiastic. Can you say amen? <laughs> All right. And the bad news, on the other hand, is that if enthusiasm does not come about, nothing happens. Even the smallest storm of enthusiasm causes the brain to set up new neural networks. What kind of networks? Look at this. Good news. Look at the person next to you. New neural networks. Just say it. And this then, in turn, supports a remodeling process in the brain. Whether that can be established long-term depends on whether you can still maintain this enthusiasm towards tomorrow. My grandfather moved in with me. He was 86 years old. I was 26 years old. This was one of the best things in my life that happened, and also for him as well. And as he moved in with me, he became very enthusiastic for my salvation. <laughs> you know, I would hear him every night, Oh, Lord God, help him out. He has serious problems, Lord. You know all about it, but you've said if I mention it, you can work on his behalf. His hearing aids were out. His prayers were, he thought he was praying in the closet in secret. And I was in the other room listening, and I was going, whoa, my grandfather is praying for me enthusiastically. He would cry out vehemently. His prayers were enthusiastic on my behalf. Changed my life. How many of you want to have enthusiastic prayers? And he was 86. He lived to 89. And the beneficiary of that was me. Enthusiasm, you know. What does Psalm 71, 17, and 18 say? Now when I am old and gray-haired, don't forsake me till I declare thy strength to this generation and to every generation that is to come. This is what he lived. He was old, but there still was a story to be told. 
And in fact, his enthusiasm actually manipulated, that's a bad word, remodeled the directions of all my seminary classes. Because I would tell him what happened that day, and he'd go, he would just look at me and say, uh, get me volume six of the testimonies and read these pages. They were the exact opposite of what I had heard in the seminary class. And he would go, let us pray. Then we would pray. Then I would go back the next day to the classroom and I would just read those pages. You should have seen what happened. It makes Vesuvius look tame and paraplegic. So, can you have an impact even when you're older? Can you have enthusiasm? Yes. Which reminds me of this great clip, which kind of illustrates this. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. All right. So, the faster I go, the better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. Okay, so you can see what's happening here. The, the, uh, I guess I turned this up too loud. Is this too loud? Okay, so what's happening here is you know, it's a very simple change, turning right and it goes left instead of the opposite way, right? And so there has to be a change in the brain. This guy takes it on as a challenge. He begins to cry out, I'm going to do this, right? By the way, if, if the kid's screaming, don't take him out. I love that. How many of you like the sound of, of, of a potential next generation? Amen. So, uh, you know, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm always just joyful when, when, when kids are screaming. It's just music to my ears. It is. I'm not joking. I think it's a great thing. Uh, I think the mother's room is one of the most important rooms in the church. Amen? Okay, so, hey, you know all about this, right? Hell yes, I remember babysitting your kids. That was great fun, by the way. So anyway, he takes this challenge on. 
right? And he becomes enthusiastic about it. Can you see that? And there's this change that has to happen. But it's kind of hard because he's been riding the bicycle how long? 30-some years. But is change possible? Let's look at the next, next, uh, next clip. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck, but at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you going to give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up. You got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, two he weeks. did something that took me three eight years months to ride to by do, two weeks, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Can you see what happened? In other words, a brain pattern that was set in a certain way actually was changed, can you say amen? If that can happen in a person's life with a bicycle, can it happen in a home life? Can it happen in an institution? Can it happen in your place of business? Can what happens in you begin to translate to other people? Did the father make a change? Did it influence his son to make a change? And if that happened there, can it be transmitted other places? Oh, yes. This is the bottom line. This is why we have evangelistic series, right? People come, and over four weeks or five weeks, what do we do? We show them a new picture, and what happens? Their lives radically change. The entire Advent movement is based on the idea that there can be neuroplastic change. And where he was wrong was saying that a child you know, has more than an adult. Adult can change. There's neuroplastic change available. It's true that it might be a little easier because that's the time involvement, yes or no? How we can see what's happening? Now, so, did you notice, did he motivate his son in any way? How? Well, yeah, he has that Australia trip, you know, the kind of carrot before the stick, but also his personal witness of every day for five minutes working on this was probably the biggest thing. And out there, well, Dad's enthusiastic about this, maybe I should be as well. And then dad's out there coaching him. Are we learning anything about what needs to surround enthusiasm? There needs to be this mentorship that goes on. You probably can't mentor everybody, but some of you can mentor some people in your business or your church or in your home. Yes or no? You know, the New Testament says, if you don't know how to rule your family well, probably wouldn't be doing well in the church. It actually is a pretty good thing, isn't it? pretty good counsel, because if you can see a family that's well-motored and well-directed, then you're going to see that happening in the church, and 
Likewise in a business, if you have certain people that you invest in. Jesus didn't invest in everybody. He invested in 12. Right? And they all did pretty good except for one. Anyway, let's keep going. What happens? Now, this is probably the most important clip, part of the clip, okay? Most important part. It's backwards. It's backwards. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American <laughs> that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. I'm back. Oh, it clicked. Hold on, it clicked. I got it. I got it. Okay, there it is. There was the moment. Okay, I can run a bike. So, why is this the most important thing? When you actually change, enthusiastically change, and change a rut that's been there for 30 years, this clip shows it's actually hard to go back the other way. Can you say amen? It's hard to go back the other way. It can do it, but you actually can change. Is it possible for you to change in your life? Is it possible for your family to change? Is it, is it possible for your church to change? Is it possible for your institution to change? And can God so work in your life that it's hard to go back? I get sick of people saying, I'm an alcoholic. Quit saying that. You've been redeemed, you've been saved, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you've been purified. You've been realigned. Amen? And this guy comes to me and he says, I'm a sex addict. And I said, why are you saying that? Well, because I did this 30 years ago and that and the other, and they told me in therapy to say that. I said, what does God's word tell you to say? It doesn't tell you to say that. Memorize these, these passages and then look at Revelation 14 where it says these are virgins because they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You're a virgin. He goes, well, I'm married. I said, I know. Let's not get technical. But you are. You have changed. You've been washed. You've been redeemed. Amen? <laughs> all right. So ultimately, <laughs> no laughing on the front row might influence me. Um... I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike, and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just now knew his boy's that riding the bike. How to ride a bike? He's riding the bike. They're down there in Australia, and there's been a change that's now being transmitted around the world from two generations. Look, I just love that clip. Didn't you like that clip? By the way, I have some DVDs afterwards if you want this presentation. And I don't. What do they charge you guys at ASI for a presentation? What is it? Eight bucks? Right, so I have something that will be cheaper than that. Well, let me tell you this. I'll I only have about 30 of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll make them available if you want them. Now, look, this happens, you know, I was taking care of this guy. He was, I don't know how old, but, and I was not really converted at this time, so it's an embarrassing story in some senses, but I was undergraduate, taking nursing, and I needed a job. 
and I needed two jobs. So I had a job taking a guy, care of a guy at night, and a job taking a guy, care of a guy during the day. I worked day and night, literally at that time. And this guy's, I took care of this one guy during the day, and his wife said, you know, we really want him to live because we're going to have a big reunion, and, and it looks like he's fading fast, and we want him there for this reunion. I said, is that the only reason you want to keep him alive? And she, she said, no, no, we love him and all that. And then I said, well, to be honest, I need a job all summer too, so I'm going to work as hard as I can. How many think that's a pretty bad threshold? I mean, but that's where it was. And so I was saying, how do I motivate this guy? The guy would not roll over. He was like telling me every day I want to die. And I said, you can't die. I mean, it's the summer. <laughs> and I didn't want to say that. So I didn't say anything. But I was like, how can I motivate this guy? And I, he's got to live because if he doesn't, I won't get into school and I won't graduate. I mean, think that's very bad. I mean, I, bad. But that's where I was at that time in my life. And then I listened to him one day. On the radio, the Cubs, the Chicago Cubs, this is when they were terrible as a team. They didn't even know how, what a ball was, much less a bat. They were losing every single game. But he loved the Cubs. He loved the Cubs. And so I was like, the guy loves the Cubs. This, he gets enthusiastic about the Cubs. And, uh, well, I can't stand stuff in between me and you guys. But, um, by the way, enthusiastic people don't like to have barriers. Okay, that's another thing. But anyway, so... I found out he liked the Cubs, but the Cubs don't come in all the time, so I taped a couple games. And then when I wanted him to roll over, I took the TV and the VCR and moved it to the other side of the bed. Can you say amen? He was like, and rolled over. And then I took the Cubs on the other side, he rolled over. Pretty soon, the decubidae on his backside began to go bye-bye, decubidae. They went, they started to go, those bedside sores were leaving. Then I said, wait a minute, I'm going to take the Cubs down the hall. Can you say amen? <laughs> Took it down the hall, turned up the volume, right? Harry Carey is singing, take me out to the ballpark. You know how he sings, like, and the entire crowd's going crazy, and I turn that up, and he's like, the Cubs, the Cubs, where are the Cubs? And I said, the Cubs are down the hall. <laughs> well, get me down the hall. I got to get down the hall. So he got out into the wheelchair down the hall. Amen. Pretty soon the Cubs would only come on in the living room for some reason. I said, the reception seems to only come on in the living room. Can you say amen? And he's in the living room. And his family was thrilled. What have you done? I said, I cannot tell you my secret. <clears throat> but, you know, this idea of enthusiasm... And finding what someone motivates someone. I ultimately think we have to change what motivates them to, 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 to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm now, I'm now converted. I need to be a little more deeply converted, but I'm converted. Can you say amen? So we, so we have two motivations that, that guide us. One is to excite. This is X means outside. Sitare means to set in motion from the outside. Many times in our companies, in our schools, in our churches, and even in our homes, we're, we're trying to excite people rather than enthuse them. We have all kinds of exterior things. I'll get you a bike. I'll get you this. I'll do that. I'll give you lower tuition. I'll do this and that. These, these things are okay, but how many think there might be something even better than extrinsic motivation? And that is what we have to tap into 
To enthuse means to come inside and bring God within. In theos. How many think that's what we need to be about? In other words, it is good to be zealous for a good thing always. Not only my presence, but also my absence, said Paul. Right? And what did he think a good thing was? Jesus said once to someone who called him good, he said, there's no one good but God. So we have to shift people to what? Motivation by God in theos. Why do I go to Weimar Institute? Because God is there. Because I'm going to learn about God there. Because people are being led to the Lord Jesus Christ there. Because we're not just talking about life, but eternal life. We're not just talking about death, but avoiding the second death. We're not just talking about life, but joyful life. And we're doing that while we're in school. We have not bought into the, we have not bought into the idolatry of academics that says, I have to study all day and I have no time to understand the spiritual condition of the people in my neighborhood. My teachers don't want to teach all day. They want to go out and preach. They want to, they want to share the gospel. And, and this is the culture. And then it becomes an in-theotic, I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up, an in-thos moment. Can you say amen? And so every time someone's talking to me, every time I'm visiting with someone, every time I talk with someone, I'm saying, how can I bring a Bible study into this conversation? I'm not going to just talk about what you need to do for your credits. I want to talk about the fact that he has paid it all and put his life to your, your credit. Can you say amen? I want, to, I want them to understand that every time they talk to me, I'm not just a teacher, I'm a fellow journeyer, and we're going along, and God is motivating us. Right? So, all right. I, I got a little too excited about that. But the impact of enthusiasm... Let's see what happens when we're enthusiastic. Go back to the research. A three-year study on the impact of instructor attitude and enthusiasm and teaching style on student learning in a medicinal chemistry course. Not, you know, how many of you say, man, I just want to sign up for a medicinal chemistry course. Maybe some people like that, but not a lot of people are going, I don't know if I'm going to make it through that. Over a three-year period distance and campus students enrolled in a medicinal chemistry course asked to complete a survey of questions relating to instructor attitude, enthusiasm, and teaching style, as well as in terms to measure student intrinsic motivation and vitality. What do you suppose they found? What do you suppose they found? Instructor enthusiasm demonstrated the highest correlation with student intrinsic motivation and vitality. If the teacher is enthusiastic, the student is enthusiastic. Do we need enthusiastic Bible teachers that understand the gospel? Do we need enthusiastic pastors? Do we need enthusiastic husbands and wives? All right, so this, this enthusiasm is contagious. Instructor attitude, instructor enthusiasm, and teaching so all play critical process in the learning process. Thus, instructors have a responsibility to evaluate and reevaluate their influence on intrinsic motivation and vitality. Are my teachers in my institution, when the students come out, are they more excited about the Adventist message? Do they believe that the world was created in seven days? Are they excited about the Sabbath? Are they excited about these different things? Or when they come out of that classroom, do they come out with doubts and questions? If they do, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a conversation with the teacher. 
Amen? Amen? <laughs> All right. In one study, we found that during the exams of those teachers who were perceived to be enthusiastic, students tended to cheat less. In other words, when they saw that God was in the teacher, it was God honoring to not cheat. In the second study, we took academic motivations into consideration and found that the more teachers seem enthusiastic, the lower the cheating rate. Teacher enthusiasm was positive related to intrinsic motivation, negatively related to a motivation, and not related to extrinsic motivation. And the results suggest that teachers perceived enthusiasm is an interpersonal factor which could effectively prevent academic cheating. So you're having cheating in the, in the school. The issue may not be the cheating, it might be the teaching. Can you say amen? By the way, they did another study, just putting the Ten Commandments up in the classroom decreases cheating, even among atheists. <laughs> so let's put those two things together. A teacher who has God's raw, law written on their hearts and minds as a result of the love that they have for Christ as seeing what he's done and is doing in their life. How many think this is a recipe for success? Amen? An example, so I can take a drink of water. Whoa, what's going on, Mr. Voss? Biology, Derek. Can someone tell me what happens when a cell stagnates? Okay. No one's listening to me. I will try again. Anyone know what happens to a stagnant cell? What's he doing on the table? I don't know. Something about cells. Malia. It's not good. Did you hear that? It ain't good. People, a cell that is not in motion is not a productive member of the system. It ends up assuming all the other cells are going to pick up the slack somewhere, but they don't. In fact, they imitate the stray cell until basically the whole organism begins to die. Yeah. But you know what? Biology is an amazing thing. And here's the good news. All that decays can be restored. Is this hidden anybody? Like how a cut heals. Like how a cut heals. Brian, my man. Oh, look, you got one. <laughs> and once that cell is back on track, it creates energy amongst the other cells. That's what happens. It starts getting a little movement going. It gets a little rumble. Can I get a little rumble from everybody? Everybody just rumble in your seats right now for me. Just rumble a little bit. Okay, no rumble. That's fine. I'll be the no rumbler up here. That's what I am. I'm a lone rumbler. But then the cell starts banging into the other cells. And the cells push back and go, hey, what are you doing to me? They hit into another one. Hey, don't do that to me. That's my friend. You don't even know him. You don't know me either. I know you. We work together. Because then they hit a rhythm. All hit a rhythm, and this is the beginning of the restorative process. So now, even if the entire system is close to dead, what happens? Martinez, come on, give me something. Oh no, not today. Oh no, not in my house. No, 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 no. Look out, here we come. Don't look up my pant leg, Derek. You're better than that. It's right over you. Come on, man. What do you say? 
all the cells work together, what will happen? Entire system is healed. Exactly. That is a sick dragon. Yeah! Can you see what happened there? The enthusiasm of the teacher. Can you see how that captured them? And then I like the clip because it then shows how it influenced the other teaching staff. Did you see that? And then even the most dragon motivated student is captured. Right? And he goes there and he actually assimilates. And so the, the, the enthusiasm of the teacher is contagious. I, I want to put a picture up here of one of my teachers, Raul Dederin from the seminary years ago. He was such a great lecturer, but he always would spit when he lectured. Like he'd say something, <coughs> spit. But I loved his classes so much that I was working at a, in a trauma center at night going to school by day, and I would, I would come from the trauma center with my scrubs on, and I literally would go to the front row and put my trauma glasses on, and I would say, Dr. Raul, just spit all day, just preach away. <laughs> because enthusiasm was so wonderful and so meaty, and what he was saying about God was so important, I wanted to be as close to him as possible, and I didn't even care if he spit all over me. <laughs> Amen. How many of you want to have that kind of enthusiasm where your own personal idiosyncrasies are dismissed because God is there? All right, a few of you. So is, is enthusiasm taught or caught? Well, it's, it's probably both. But notice, training character strengths makes you happy. Researchers randomly divided a sample of 178 adults Three groups. One group trained the strengths of curiosity, gratitude, optimism, humor, and enthusiasm for a period of 10 weeks. Second group worked with the strengths of appreciation of beauty, creativity, kindness, love of learning, and foresight. Third group served as a control, didn't do anything. What happened? Well, there was a significant increase in life in the group that trained in curiosity, gratitude, optimism, humor, and enthusiasm. These participants were more cheerful, often more in a good mood, and those who learn to control their actions and feeling more effectively during the training period developed more enthusiasm and benefited most from the training. So, here's the point. Enthusiasm can kind of be taught. And it's also caught. This is why evangelism, this is why Bible studies, this is why all these things work. It's called educare, which means educare means to change the character. It's the word education. And this is why to educate is to redeem. Right? So Jesus didn't just take 10 days or five weeks in an evangelistic campaign. He had a school that lasted three and a half years, also went during the summers. Turned the world upside down. And then they wrote the notes down afterward. We call them the Gospels. Can you say amen? Paul started the school of Tyrannus in Acts 19. It, it, it can combine all the things a school should have. Bible study, and it also had health evangelism, preaching, teaching, and healing. had all those three. And it turned all Asia upside down in two years. How many of you think that we should be educating people to be enthusiastic? And we have to educate them the right way. Because they can be like this knight who went the wrong way with his education 
Oh, Sire, I have been laboring in your servants, robbing and burning and pillaging your enemies to the west. He came back excitedly to the master of the castle. You've been what? Cried the startled nobleman, but I don't have any enemies in the west. <laughs> you do now, said the knight. So we have to be careful about how we're educating people, what way. This is why we have an education system. How many think it's important to have an education system? Right? And how many think it's important to send people to our schools, not the schools of the world? And by the way, when I say our schools, not all our schools are still our schools in some senses, although they're all prisoners of hope wherever they are. I've been in countries where there's no educational system, and that's a disaster. Even the worst schools that you can think of that you think are the worst schools are actually better than no school. Amen? So how many think we need to, we need to make our schools as, as good as possible with enthusiastic folks in theos? Um, but uh, there's a big beauty. I love this text, Galatians 4.18. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. This is the goal of education. To, to have the zeal for God lived out in front of students that realize that our goal is not academic idolatry, but academics as a platform for a higher mission field of evangelism. I want to become a professional so I can reach more people more effectively for Jesus. I'm not doing it just because of the money and not even primarily because of the money, but I want to be zealously affected at a good thing. Always, Paul says, and not only in my presence. So once I'm through teaching you, then you're zealously affected. Can you say amen? amen. This is our goal. This is what our ASI members is what our business is to be about. If your business is just about money, you're doomed. You're lost. <laughs> but if your business is about the king's business, then everything you do in that business should be included, should be focusing on enthusiastic sharing of the gospel. Amen? Enthusiastic teaching, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. These words which I command you this day shall be in thine heart. That's intrinsic. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Talk when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It's kind of this full-bodied mentorship. But notice, you shall teach them diligently. In the Hebrew, the word teach is in the hippile form, which means teach them diligently. It literally means to cause them to want to know. Only thing that causes people to want to know is enthusiasm. This person is enthusiastic about what they're saying, not just in the classroom either, all over the place. You know, let's get out of the classroom so we can share what we learned here and win a soul. You should be able to say that whatever you're teaching. If you can't say that, you probably shouldn't be the teacher, at least in an Adventist school. The word religion is an interesting word. <clears throat> Different people argue about what it means. Augustine said it means to choose again. Cicero said it means to reread or go over the text again. To re-legare, to reread. And I like lactantius, which is uh, really the, what I see it as, to bind like a ligament. But notice how they all work. How many think we need to lead people to choose to be connected with God and with others in an effective way. And to do that, we need to have them reread or go over the scriptures again so they can see that. Can you say amen? And then they actually are connected with God and others as a ligament would be. Yes? So 
important. Early in the uh, American history, <clears throat> there was a group of people called the enthusiasts. The go around, and this was a pejorative term, but it was in New England. And uh, one of them was Wesley and the other was Whitfield. And they went up and down the seaboard and they were called enthusiasts. One year, Whitfield traveled 5,000 miles through America, preaching more than 350 times as he traversed the nation north to south. An estimated 25,000 people gathered at Boston Common to hear him speak. Another 12,000 heard him in Philadelphia and 8,000 in New York City. And his enthusiastic preaching brought about the Great Awakening. Fifteen months, as much as a quarter of the country had heard his message. And because he was so enthusiastic, they would travel for miles to hear him. I don't think we need more of that preaching today. Benjamin Franklin was one who was gripped by his preaching, even though not a staunch believer, if at all a believer. He and he and Whitfield developed a relationship together. Here's what Franklin said about him. Every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject at all, one could not help but being pleased with the discourse. That's academic excellence, right? <laughs> That's excellence in presentation, and yet it's drawing in the upper intelligentsia of the city. It was a pleasure of the much the same kind that was received when listening from an excellent piece of music. And so he began to work with him to publish his, his work for funds, and it happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, said Benjamin Franklin. And I resolved he would get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money and some silver dollars and pistoles and gold. When he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded, I'm going to give the coppers. <laughs> Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I said, I'm going to give him the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's disc, gold and all. How many of you want to have that kind of presentation of the gospel? Jonathan Edwards, Sarah Edwards said, David Hume thought it was worth going 20 miles to hear him speak. And Garrick, an actor who envied Whitfield, said he could move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> it is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often cast on the audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible, Jonathan Edwards and Sarah continued. A prejudiced person might say, it's all theatrical artifice and display, it's exciting. But no one will... So will anyone think who has seen and known him. He's a very devout and godly man. And his only aim seems to be to reach and influence men in the best way. In other words, he's in theos. He's actually into God. He believes it. Amen? He speaks from the heart all aglow with love and pours out a torrent of eloquence which is almost irresistible. So what were they saying? This is not an extrinsic motivation when we get to know him and we've seen him. This is God within, and now it's coming out, and it seeps out. It's changing our lives. How many want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ? How many want to have that in your home? How many want to have that in your church, in your business, in your school? I'm almost preaching now. 
Notice what he said, I will bawl. I will not be a velvet mouth preacher. I will shout loudly, he says. Notice him describing one day the Archbishop of Canterbury said to Butterton, an actor, pray inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason your actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary if, if they were real while we in church speak of things real which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? And do you remember how he replied? Well, my Lord, said Butterton, the reason is plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary if they, as if they were real, and you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. How many of you really believe that God is God, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he came, he lived, he died, he's now living to make intercession, he's coming back again? Amen. And how many want to live like that? If that's true, you should be the most enthusiastic person around. Therefore, added Whitfield, I will bawl, I will shout loudly, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. Now, you say, you know, Benjamin Franklin was just, you know, interested in his oratory, but notice what he writes. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners and behaviors of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seems as if all the world were growing religious. And so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing the psalms sung in different families of every street. Benjamin Franklin said, wait a minute, this is wonderful. How many think there needs to be that kind of revival in Boston again? That kind of revival, <laughs> I see some folks from Boston here nodding their head. Lord, send a revival. What's the problem with the Laodicean church after speaking about the condition of the church? Being lukewarm, what does the Lord say? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. There's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm in the Laodicean church. How many think that needs to change? We can't have Laodicean churches, Laodicean businesses, Laodicean families. We need to be zealous for a good thing always. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God wants enthusiastic people. Not contrived, but derived from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the only hope? Therefore, be zealous and repent. I mean, I think we need to be zealous and repent. You know, speaking of Boston, they have a team out there that looked like they were losing big time in the last Super Bowl. How many, how many of you at least talked to someone who watched this game? I know all of you are, never would watch such a thing. Can you say amen? Look at the person with a straight face and say amen. No one's looking at each other now. So anyway, this game went on and they were totally down. I don't remember what the store was, but it was like 34 to, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was bad. 28 to 3 or something. And in the last quarter, amazingly, they never gave up. They stuck true to their principles as a team, a sports team, and they just kept going. And in the last moment, they won the game. You know, the remnant church is a lot like that, but we need a group of people that will stick to the fundamentals, keep going at the last moment, and win the game. How many want to be on that team? That's the point. 
Here's a quote that someone just sent me this morning. My work at Weimar, um, I could tell you more about that. We don't have time, but I'm telling you what. The entire place, I believe God has re-raised it. The school shut down, started up again. I mean, God has led in that. And I read this quote this morning, and it really encapsulated what was happening there. When God opens the way for the accomplishment of a certain work and gives assurance of success, and he's done that, he wants education, he, he gave us success in fundraising and different things, the chosen instrumentality must do all in his power to bring about the promised result. All in his power. The proportion to the enthusiasm and perseverance with which the work is carried forward will be the success given God can work miracles for his people, but only as they act their part with untiring energy. How, how many can see how enthusiasm and perseverance is important? He calls for devote, men of devotion to his work, men of moral courage, with an ardent love for souls, and with a zeal that never flags. That's the definition of enthusiasm in theos, yes. Right? Zealous. Such workers will find no task too arduous, no prospect too hopeless. They will labor on undaunted until apparent defeat is turned into glorious victory. I don't know what your situation is, but how many of you desire to have glorious victory? Amen? Not even prison walls nor martyr's stake beyond will cause them to swerve from their purpose of laboring together with God for the upbuilding of his kingdom. What a powerful quote. That's what we need. And until a man finds a cause for which he's willing to die, he's not fit to live. And you've got to be invested. Were you willing to die for the cause? If not, why are you doing that? Get out of there and do something you're willing to die for. Jesus was willing to die for you. He wants you to take up his cross and follow. Uh, pour yourself on the battlefield. You better make sure that it's his cause you're in. Your business needs to be the king's business, not just your business. And when Jesus did that, one person followed him, and then 12, and then 70, and then 5,000. Then it went down to 12, and then down to 1, and Jesus died. It looked like a defeat, and looked like that was it. But then what happened? It went down to zero. He died. But then he rose again. Can you say hallelujah? And then the 12 followed him, and got things right, and then 120, and then 3,000, and then 8,000, and then multitudes. And we're sitting here today because of the enthusiasm of Jesus Christ. What a powerful lesson for us. I don't have time to share the testimony except for this. Maybe I should. What, what time do I have? Do I have time? A couple minutes. This, this family, I... I, uh, I was in California. I said, God, I love working here in California, but it's too expensive. My rent's 2500 a month. My utility's 5000 and I'm making less than that a month. <laughs> so I've got to leave. Unless you want something different. I went and preached at this church, and afterwards this guy comes up to me, this guy, and he says to me, I want to bless you. I said, well, go ahead and bless me. I was a little nervous because a guy tried to bless me in Phoenix a couple weeks earlier and laid his hands on me, and I just said, stop after a while. But... I, and I said, how do you want to bless me? He said, well, look, I want to give you a house to live in. I said, what are you talking about? I said, how much is it? He goes, he goes this is the Sabbath. But I can talk to you about how much it is because it's free. And he took me up and showed me this house on a 10-acre place with a stream running by. And he said, you know what? We need enthusiasm in this church. We need you here. We want you to be in this house. 
and, and, and we also, whatever color you want it painted, we'll paint it that color. If you need a new room for your office, we need that. If you need the internet, you need that. And my kids said, we want a swimming pool. <laughs> I said to my kids, you don't say that kind of stuff, but eventually they built them a $50,000 swimming pool. And I thought, I said, you know, God dramatically answered this prayer. I would not accept it for zero because I'd prayed to God. I said, I want something radical, God. 1,000 a month. <laughs> and he came back with nothing a month. And so I said to them, I said, I'm going to pay you 1,000 a month. And they said, we don't care. You can pay us 1,000. We're putting it into the evangelism fund and telling the church that only you can spend it. Can you say Amen. Can God answer prayers? You know, God wants to answer your prayers. But He only will do that if you're doing His work. In His spirit, in His way, whatever it is in your home. Lord, send a revival. Oh Christ, my Lord, let it go over land and sea. Send it according to Thy dear word. And let it begin with me. How many want to have a revival in your life of enthusiasm? And really the revival has to come in focusing on God's word, his will, and his way, and how that's to be directed. But I can tell you from personal experience, enthusiasm can change your own life and your own brain. Now summarizing. It can change those you're teaching, and it can change the world. All right, did I give you something to talk, think about? Let's pray together, and then if you have any questions, of course, I'll give as enthusiastic answer as I can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, this has been a wonderful time together, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to transmit itself somehow into our lives, and then through our lives for your kingdom and glory. We live in a Laodicean time period, and you're calling us to be zealous and to repent, to do a 180. And so that all will know it's not us that did it, but that you did it. Not through exciting us, but through internally in theos, enthusing us. According to your word, your will, and your way, we ask that it would happen. We come in Christ's name. Amen and amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.